we want to welcome you to our community. We're so glad you're here. We're going to be tracking uh, this Christmas with the All Church calendar. So there's a liturgical year that is different from a calendar year. The liturgical year, actually the new year starts now. So Happy New Year. Uh, it starts with the four weeks leading up to the celebration of the birth of Jesus called Advent. Advent means coming or arrival. And so what we're going to do is we're going to track with the four Sundays. They're themed uh, hope and peace and joy and love. And so we're going to be doing that. To assist you in that, take out, you got this, the weekly. It's a little heftier today because we got a little, we got some stuff for you. Um, first of all, on if you open it up, on the left side you've got uh, some thoughts, a, a bit of a devotional, and then you've got an Advent calendar. Oh yes. Now, none of this is required, but Jesus knows whether or not you do this. So I'm just throwing that out there. Um, you see the 30, that's today. Notice tonight we've got a Christmas tree lighting, family event, 6.30 out on the plaza. Um, highly encourage you to come, it's be about 40 minutes. And then you've got different ideas uh, for you to do. You can use these or do them as a family or whatever. Next Saturday, we have something called Christmas Clean Out. Um, and what we do at our home, uh, quite honestly, in preparation for Christmas is we ask our kids, we do it ourselves, we actually go through and clean out our house, not just of junk, we throw the junk away, but we give away clothes, we give away all sorts of things, as a way of saying, okay, this is not about receiving, it's better to give than to receive. And so, to assist you in that, we're going to pull a Salvation Army truck up next Saturday morning over on North Campus. One truck, I believe, will not be sufficient because you all are hoarders. And I believe you have lots that you need to give away. So we're not interested in your junk. Throw your junk away. If something is useful, um, and we always tell our kids, it's got to cost something. It can't just be the toys you don't play with anymore or the clothes you don't wear anymore. This is a spiritual thing that we ask them to do. So we encourage you to take advantage of that. And then next Sunday night, my personal highlight, it is, uh, it is called The Sweetest Christmas Ever. I, I keep calling it The Swedish Christmas Ever, which, you know... I just think it's funny, but it is uh, our disabilities ministry plans for this for the entire year. I mean, they, the kids and the adults, so it's about 60 or 70 special needs kids and adults and all of their families put this on. We had about 1,200 people here last year, uh, and it, it is literally the best thing we do. Seth Erie, um, if you don't know who he is, you will after that, because he's got a speaking part, so we're very excited about that. That's next Sunday night. We also have a family concert uh, uh, next Friday night. We've got a blue Christmas notice on Tuesday the 15th. And these are all themed. So you've got hope, peace, joy. So part of what we wanted to do uh, after that we talk about joy is we wanted to have a blue Christmas service. And what that is, is not only an excuse to play Elvis in church, but it is also the idea that um, as we celebrate uh, the kingdom come, God's coming, we recognize that there's still an, a part two that we're waiting for. And for many people, Christmas is a miserable time of year because it, it intensifies longing. It intensifies loss. So you're, you're mindful of family members you've lost or relationships that are broken. Or this time last year, this is what you were making and here's where you are now. Or maybe you've lost your health over the past year, whatever. This season just kind of, for some, it's like awesome and it's tinsel and it's Christmas carols. And for others, it's just endurance. And so we're going to do a lament service. This is going to be a communion service of lament as we lament the fact that God has come and is coming. His kingdom is here, but it's not fully 
all the way here. And so it's just going to be a different kind of thing. And then you can track kind of with the rest of the stuff. Tonight we're doing a Christmas tree lighting. I want to make sure uh, you remember that. So this morning, we're actually going to jump out of Luke, and everyone was disappointed, and we're going to track with the themes of Advent. So we're going to look at hope this morning. Let's go to Genesis chapter 2. I have 19 passages I have to get through. A bit ambitious, but I had, I, I had time to extra prepare. So whenever I'm off a week, the, the one that follows the off is usually ridiculous because I have, I'd spend too much time in my head. So we have 19 passages, which means if you're not familiar with the Bible, we're putting them all on the screen. If you do have a Bible and try to track, I can't wait for you. So we're going to go Genesis, Genesis, Revelation, Revelation, Genesis, uh, and then we're into more Genesis, and then we're into 2 Samuel and Isaiah. Well, you'll see. All right, so go, go to Genesis chapter 2. Now, I want, I, want you to, I want to draw your attention to a particular tree, Genesis chapter 2. Let's go uh, to verse 8. Now, this is the account, the second creation account, uh, where we read about a garden called Eden. Notice verse 8. The Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye, good for food. In the middle of the garden were what? The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We've looked at that second tree pretty recently. So I want to focus on this idea of the tree of life. Now, later on in the biblical account, we read the tree of life is eaten if you, if, and you eat of it to live forever. So whether it was a, a literal tree, whether it was symbolic of living forever, whatever it was, this tree of life was a, a picture of living forever in God's presence. All right. Now notice chapter three, when the first man and the first woman, uh, enter into disobedience, God actually kicks them out of the garden. Verse 23. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which, uh, from which he'd been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim, which were angels, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to what? The tree of life. So the story begins. They have access to this tree called the tree of life. In their disobedience and rebellion, God bars them from that tree. All right, now go to Revelation chapter 21. You can go home and say, yep, we covered Genesis to Revelation today. It was awesome. Revelation chapter 21. Very, very familiar passages for some of us. Revelation 21. <laughs> verse, uh, we'll start in verse 1. So this is how the story ends. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. Remember, sea is symbolic of chaos. So that's that's what that is. Surfers are bummed to read that, but there's symbolism to it. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So the the biblical story isn't us up in heaven with floaty wings in an eternal church service. The biblical story is human beings with resurrected bodies living on a new earth, which sounds a bit more compelling than wings and harps. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. 
They will be his people. God will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Unbelievably awesome. Flip over to chapter 22. Now, I don't have time to show you all the parallels between the Garden of Eden and this picture, but the, the writer is telling you, hey, what, how the story starts is how it ends. Instead of a garden, though, we now have a city, because there are many more people, is the idea. Chapter 22, verse 1, the angel showed me the river of the water of life. This is describing that new city that we just read about. As clear as crystal, flowing down from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him. So the story begins, the biblical story begins with human beings on earth with God, fully intimate with Him, serving and working, playing and doing whatever they're going to do as an act of worship to God. The story ends with the same scenario. Now it's a city. The story begins with a tree of life. The story ends with a tree of life. But we now live between these trees. Because the way back is barred for us. We cannot go back to the tree of life. And the way ahead is not yet fully here. So we live between the tree of the tree of life in the garden and the tree of life in the city. We live between these trees. Are you with me so far? Now the gospel story is about a God who enters into life between these trees in a very interesting way. Now I want to talk about God's coming into life between the trees. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. Now, I'm going to look at a whole bunch of passages very quickly that are giving us details and promises about what God is going to do to put the earth back together to the way he intended it. Go to Genesis 3, and we'll just pop right into verse 15. Genesis 3, verse 15. Now, the biblical story has a snake, a serpent, that tempts the first man and first woman into disobedience. So God comes when he discovers their disobedience and he judges them. And these judgments turn out to be acts of mercy, but we don't have time to explore that. The judgment given to the serpent, though, uh, is interesting in several respects. But notice verse 15, speaking to the serpent, God says, I will put animosity, enmity, animosity between you, serpent, and the woman, between your offspring, serpent, and hers. So we're speaking plural of offspring, Then we read he. So we've gone from plural offspring to just a singular he. He will crush your head, serpent, and you, serpent, will strike his heel. Now what in the world are we talking about? So much to say here, but looking back through the story, through the lens of the resurrected Jesus, theologians see this as the earliest hint that God will not let the serpent have the last word over the human race. That there will come an offspring of the woman, which is interesting because usually it would be described as the seed of a man or the offspring of a man. So the seed of a woman or the offspring of a woman was a countercultural way of saying this that kind of hints at the fact that the woman that gives birth to the he isn't going to need a man's help. hmm. <laughs> Interestingly enough, so very early in the story, we read about a human being that will come and strike a decisive blow against the serpent and all the serpent represents. Are you with me? 
Okay, now we're going to read more about the he. Go to Genesis 12 very quickly. We, we, as the story goes on, you read more and more about this he. Genesis 12, very quickly, is a promise we look at all the time. Out of all of the offspring of the woman, out of all of humanity, one dude is chosen named Abram. And Abram is given this promise. Verse 2, I will make you into a great nation, Abram. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, curse you. Uh, Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all nations on earth will be blessed through you. So the story starts with the offspring of a woman. It narrows to the offspring of a man named Abram. And it keeps getting narrower. Go, if you would, to uh, Genesis chapter 49. Abraham has a son Isaac, Isaac has a son Jacob, Jacob has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel as Jacob is renamed from Jacob to Israel. And right near the end of his life, Jacob is blessing, and these turn out to be prophecies, he's blessing his sons. And notice he speaks to one son named Judah that becomes the tribe of Judah. Notice verse 10, the scepter, now what's a scepter, do you know? Kind of a kingly staff, right? Because we're all familiar with that in a democracy. Okay. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Story starts this wide. Offspring of a woman. Offspring of Abraham. Offspring of Abraham, now there are 12 branches. Judah. Someone from Judah will be a king. And his kingship will command the obedience of the nations. Okay, let's read a little bit more. Tell me more about this king. Go to 2 Samuel. It's fascinating. I can feel your energy. I can feel it. I'm feeding off of it right now. You're just zeal to know all of this. I feel it. Or it could be projecting. I think it's the latter. Second Samuel chapter 7. We meet a man named David who is king. David wants to build a temple for his God, a house for his God. God responds by saying, nope, your son will build a house for me, but I'm going to build a house for you. And what he means by house is a lineage, a line of descendants. Notice, second part of verse 11, the Lord declares, chapter 7, The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord himself will establish a house, a lineage for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. Now that literally happens with a guy named Solomon. And I will establish his kingdom. Truly, the kingdom of Solomon prospers. He is the one who will build a house for my name. He's the one that will build me a temple. And I will establish his, the throne of his kingdom. What's it say? Forever. Now, does that mean literally Solomon will reign forever? Nope. But it means there's, there's kingship now in David's line. Now, who was David related to? Judah. Who was Judah related to? Abraham. Who was Abraham related to? Eve. All right, so you, it's getting... Smaller and smaller. It's like narrowing as you go through the story. I will be, verse 14, I will be his father. He will be my son. Verse 16, 
David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So he's saying to David, listen, your son, yes, will be on the throne, but I'm going to do something through your line, your house, where kingship will be established forever. Are you with me yet again? Okay. Hmm. No? Yes? All right, let's go to Psalm chapter 2. Yes! Yes! Yeah! All right, Psalm 2, then Isaiah 11, just if you want to prepare yourself. And then Zechariah. And then New Testament. We're all happy. What did I say, Psalm? Psalm chapter 2. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, you guys are going to miss the best part right here. Miss it. Unless that's a restroom break, and then in which case, please, please go. In more ways than one. Now, Psalm chapter 2, verse 1. This is an enthronement psalm. This was read when Israel would install a new king. And just like 2 Samuel, it's talking about a literal physical king, but it's also talking about kingship being established forever. Notice, the psalmist writes, Why do the nations conspire and people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and his what? Anointed. Now, when you read the word anointed, that's the word Messiah. Okay, Messiah just means anointed one. Okay, so the Lord and his Messiah. Why do the nations conspire against the Lord and his Messiah? Saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. He scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger, terrifies them in his wrath, and says, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, the king, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance. Now that's all Old Testament stuff. Do you see it? Right? So kingly line, a a, a rule that has the nation's obedience under his feet. I mean, all of that is being pulled forward into this psalm. So that's why it was considered a messianic psalm in Jesus' day. Isaiah chapter 11. Mm. This one's a little, little more confusing. Isaiah chapter 11. If that's possible, it is a little more confusing. Notice Isaiah 11, verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Yeah. Now, who's Jesse? David's dad. So this is a very Jewish, again, to the the Hebrew mind, pictures are more powerful than definitions. So you could say, yeah, yeah, someone's going to come from the line of David. But it's way more vivid to say, it looks like the kingdom's been cut off, and from this stump there will grow a green shoot, a new branch. And then he describes this new branch, this person from David's line. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes, but by righteousness he will judge the needy. Justice he will give decisions for the poor. Notice verse 6, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat. In other words, they won't eat each other. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, the lox will eat straw, excuse me, the lion will eat straw like the ox, the infant will play near the cobra's den. What's the picture? That this king is coming to bring peace, right? 
shalom so intensely that even the animal kingdom lives in harmony. That's the picture. So that's what this king is supposed to do. Now, flip to the edge. I'm going to skip Zechariah. Skip to the edge of your Old Testament. Go to Micah. Last chapter of Micah. Micah chapter 4. I know you weren't ready for Zechariah. You just weren't ready. 8 o'clock, got it. <laughs> Mel- just, oh, come on. Come on. Come on. All right, Malachi. Now, Ma- Malachi, what did I say? Malachi. Don't listen to what I say. Go to Malachi. Okay. Malachi chapter 4. The last, literally the last page in your Old Testament. All right? Now, when I flip the page, my Bible says the New Testament. In biblical history, the flipping of the page is 400 years. So the story ends. This one little white sheet is 400 years of human history. Where God didn't speak. Where God was letting pagan nations rule over Israel. Where all of the people were waiting for this to come true. The one from Eve through Abraham, from Judah, of David's line, a king commanding the obedience of the nations who brings peace to the earth. We sit and we flip a page. This is 400, pages of, uh, 400 years of history, of, of silence, of quiet. Flip the page to Matthew chapter 1. Then you now have gospel writers saying something very unique. Matthew 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy. Now the word in Greek is the word that would be Genesis. This is the origin. And so it's just an interesting little deal. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah, the son of? And the son of? Now you see why that matters, right? What's he telling you in his intro sentence? It's here. It's here. This is the genesis of Jesus, the anointed one from David and from Abraham. You could not drop two more powerful messianic names than David and Abraham. And boom, there you go. Go to Mark chapter one. Our gospel writers in ways that are so abundantly clear are telling us, yeah, 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 all of that. It's here. It's here. Mark chapter one, verse 14. I mean, Mark 1.1 is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the anointed one, the Son of God. Okay, that's about as clear as you get, right? Because 2 Samuel and Psalm 2, this anointed one has some sort of son-father relationship with God. But verse 14 is what I want to look at. After John was put into prison, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come! Can you imagine after 400 years... That simple phrase, the time has come. It's come. The kingdom of God is close to you. Now, what is the kingdom of God? We just read about it. It's when God is king, right? It's when God rules through God's anointed one. And there's justice. And there's peace. And the poor are provided for. And animals are laying down. I mean, 
That's, this is what's been promised, that someone will sit on the throne of Jacob forever, right? This is it. The kingdom of God is here. The time has come. After 400 years of silence, that's a pretty good deal. Right? The only word they could describe this was good news. Because for 400 years of waiting and languishing and silence, it's here. This kingship of God is now here. Go to Luke. Oh, Luke, we have missed you. It's been so long. Luke chapter 2. Now, Luke 1. Luke 1. We read this last year. (laughs) Verse uh, 31. An angel appears to Mary and says, You will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to call him Yahshua. Yahweh saves. He will be great and will be called what? Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Oh, oh! Does that sound familiar? Son of God, reign over Jacob from David. I mean, you just go, boom, there it is. We're not even into the meaty part yet and we're finding out who it is we're talking about. The Gospels announce beyond a shadow of a doubt everything that was promised is now being fulfilled in this Jesus. And Jesus himself was aware of this. Flip over to Luke 4. We looked at this passage a couple of times. Jesus sits down in his hometown synagogue, quotes, he's preaching. So he quotes from the passage in Isaiah 61 that was widely considered messianic. And then he has this as his intro. Verse 21. He began by saying to his hometown synagogue, today this messianic scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, we remember how that didn't work out so well for him. But Jesus was very, very aware of who he was and what he was up to. Would you agree? So the announcement is, it's here. It's here. It's here. It's here. I mean, in fact, go to Luke 17. Just a couple of more. You're doing so great. Relevance is so far still. But Luke 17. Once, verse 20. Once, on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because it's here! It's already in your midst! Now, at the same time Jesus was saying, it's here, it's here, it's here, Jesus was also saying, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Which was really confusing for everybody, including us. Right? So flip over to chapter 19. Notice verse 11. While they were listening to this, Jesus went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Oh, oh, hold on. In 17, you just said it was here. And in 19, you're saying, oh, it's not here. I mean, have you, has that ever confused anybody else? I mean, all the Gospels announce, it's here, it's here, it's here, it's here. And then Jesus walks around saying, hey, I'm coming back. On that day in the future, it's going to be like this. And Jesus tells all these parables about a king entrusting his servants and then leaving. And then coming back and holding them accountable. So what you realize in the Gospels, we don't just live between two trees, we live between two advents or comings, right? Right? 
So God entered into life between these two trees. But when he came, he said, it's here, it's here, it's here, and it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, and both are true. Go if you would to the book of Acts. See, this was really confusing to everybody. Because people were going, um, uh, if it's here, there are certain things that should characterize its being here. One of them is not you getting crucified, by the way. So, after Jesus gets killed, he's buried, he rises from the dead. Then they ask him the question that's been burning in their hearts. They say, and I love this, alright? This is, I mean, you've seen him resurrected. This should be the moment you can ask him anything in the world. Notice what they ask him. Verse 6, they gathered around him and said, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, there isn't peace on earth yet. I mean, I'm looking at lions and lambs and they're not hanging out. I'm not going to let my kids go play with cobras. Where's the justice and the righteousness? See, you can talk to, to Jewish folks today and say, how come you don't believe Jesus is Messiah? And they'll give you a very simple answer. He didn't do what Messiah was supposed to do. Where is justice and peace? Where is shalom? Where is righteousness? And so they say the Messiah is still to come. We would say he's come once, he's coming again, and we live between those two comings. Right? I mean, notice what, he, what Jesus ascends into heaven, verse 10. Bless you. The disciples were looking intently up into the sky as Jesus was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside the men of Galilee. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? Oh, I don't know. Just because Jesus ascended into heaven? I mean, maybe that's the reason. I'd have gotten zapped. I'd have been a pillar of salt like in just a second. The angel says, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back the same way. So, Jesus says, when, when they ask him, are you going to do the Jesus thing, like the Messiah thing now? Jesus says, hey, it's not for you to know. I'll come back. Oh. So we live between two trees, and we live between two comings, right? Now, one last beautiful passage. Luke chapter 2. And then relevance is here. Central to the Christmas story is Waiting. So we meet a guy, Luke chapter 2, verse 25. This is when Jesus is presented at the temple. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was what? Waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. In other words... He is exactly where we are, waiting. The Spirit's on him, but he's waiting. He's got an armful of promises that the Messiah's coming, and he's waiting. Now, how good are we at waiting? Wait times are something to be eliminated, correct? If literally the clock next to the drive through fast food restaurant starts getting over a minute, I'm kind of getting a little twitchy. When my computer 
takes longer than four seconds, right, to load. I mean, we're people who are horrible at waiting. Advent is the time when you look both ways before you cross the street. Advent is the time when you look back and you remember His first coming. And Advent is the time you look forward to the anticipation of a second coming, and you realize we now, we're like ancient Israel was. We're just like Simeon. We're waiting for the consolation that's been promised. And the thing about waiting that we learn from the story is that waiting means you're honest about two really important things. You're honest about your suffering, and you're honest about your hope. The reason we're honest about our suffering is because the kingdom isn't fully here yet. We're still waiting for access to that second tree, right? The same tree now in a city. We're waiting for that. And the promise is that when Jesus returns, there'll be no more suffering and sorrow and tears. I mean, that's the promise. That's what we're holding on to. But because it's not fully here yet, we grieve. Life between the trees is awful. I mean, I used to picture the second coming of Jesus as interrupting a pretty good life. Now I picture the second coming of Jesus as, okay, I'm ready today. Right now. It would be great. Because the older you get, the more you see people wither away from cancer. The more people around you die and you have to bury them. The more you see the calamities and the tragedies that play out on a national scale. The more you see the absence of shalom and conflict and war and violence and rape and murder. The more you see it. See, we think that Jesus, there's a God-shaped hole in my heart and Jesus is going to come and make me feel good. There is a God-shaped hole in my heart, but when Jesus fills it, He intensifies longing. He doesn't take it away. Because if you believe this whole thing is just a random accident, well, when bad things happen, bummer to be you. But if you believe at the root of the universe is benevolence and love and justice, then how can you not in that moment cry out with the early church and the church from then until now, come Lord Jesus! See, that's what this is. This is waiting for the consolation that's been promised. And we're miserable at it. And so we settle for tips and techniques and self-help and let's grab our best life now and that's not the point. Church isn't the place. The community of faith isn't the place where we are to pretend. To wait well means you're honest. I grew up in a church, and God bless them, great church. But it was really a high degree of polish on Sunday mornings. You know what I mean? You look good, you act right, you could be fighting in the parking lot, but man, when we walk out of that car, we're all good. You got it, kids? You got it? And it always reminded me of getting my family picture taken at this horrible place called Olin Mills I've told you about. (laughs) You fight, you fight, you fight, you smile. You fight, you fight, you fight. That was what church was. And and I was horrified one night when one of the leaders of our little church, uh, my dad and I came in late one night to pick up something, and I heard like weeping, like deep sobbing from in our little sanctuary. I've never heard that in church before. So I peek in, and it's this leader of our church. And I remember, I didn't tell anybody this, but I remember thinking two things. Number one, how come you got to do it when no one's here? But secondly, 
It's nice to know you weep too. And so I believe that if we are to be good news in between the advents and the trees, we have to be honest about what life is like under the sun, as the writer of Ecclesiastes put it. That your life has pain and disappointment. And I've found that the the church, capital C, isn't very good at giving people permission to be messy. And I don't mean like properly messy. I mean snotty, blubbering messy. Because then people are going to judge us. What a horrible thing. I mean, my wife and I have had moments in our lives where we've encountered something that, that threw us for a loop in the most significant way imaginable. And we would have two kinds of friends in that moment. One kind of friends, one group of friends would come with cards and cl- casseroles and cliches. And another group of friends would just come and sit with us and cry with us. Which friends met more in that moment? The friends who just wept with us, right? And so when we talk about hope, we're not talking about the absence of suffering because life between the trees is suffering. Nor are we talking about the fact that suffering will no longer hurt someday. Nope, that's not it. It still hurts. So we're honest about the reality of suffering. We have to be the place where it is totally okay for you to say, you know, my wife and I are really in trouble i got a kid blowing out. I have no idea what to do about it. I've lost my income, and I have no idea where my next paycheck's going to come. Now, we usually bless people in those extreme scenarios to be messy. But what about those of us that struggle with pornography and are so disappointed in our marriages? What about those of us who have anger problems? Or those of us who are so freaking proud will never, ever apologize? See, those aren't really the glamorous things, right? So, as a community, if we really do believe we're all falling short, and we really do believe that this is a collection of people in progress, waiting means being honest. And we're honest about the reality of lament and the reality of suffering, but we're also honest about the reality of our hope. Because you know what we can say? We can say two things. Hope doesn't mean the problem will go away tomorrow, although it can, right? The kingdom's here. God could heal you right now. He could reconcile you right now with that person. He could bring your kid back right now. And I do believe God does miraculous stuff all the time. But when Jesus walked the earth, how many dead people did he leave in their graves? How many lepers did he not touch? How many poor people stayed in their poverty? So even when Jesus was here, not every single person was healed. And so we pray like crazy because there's hope now. Absolutely. But because we're between the trees, that hope is often frustrated. I grow tired of praying for people with cancer. I grow tired of praying for people who are struggling in their marriages. I grow tired of praying for addicts to be released from their slavery, right? The hope is based on two things according to the Christian story. Number one, Emmanuel means God with you, not in the pretty stuff, not in the tinsely stuff, but in the ugly stuff. We worship a Jesus who knows what it's like to be betrayed, who knows what it's like to be angry, who knows what it's like to be disappointed and to be hungry and to be thirsty and to be poor. He knows exactly what that's like. And two of the most powerful words anyone could ever say to you are me too. And so Christmas is the divine me too. God, you don't know what it's like. I do. 
actually. But the second hope is simply this, the announcement that wherever you are today, it won't always be this way. It just won't always be this way. It won't. It won't always be this way. I don't know how long it'll be this way, but it won't always be this way. I know that. I know that. I know that. This depression won't always be there. This infertility won't always be there. I mean, <laughs> I sit and, and I love hanging around people that are um, different-abled. They have special needs, whatever. A friend of mine years ago, was, he's been confined in a wheelchair from the moment he should have been walking and will be his whole life. And so that boy has got some hope because he literally looks forward. I mean, and I don't know how to take this, but he looks forward to the day he dies. Why? I hope I open my eyes and I run. That's what I hope. So there's a hope that's now and a hope that's not yet. There's a grieving that is now but a grieving that is not in the future. And that's why Paul will say grieve, but not as those who have no hope. Because we believe it won't always be this way. This, the serpent doesn't have the final word. Cancer doesn't have the final word. Divorce doesn't have the final word. Poverty doesn't have the final word. And it's easy to nod and agree with the theory. It's tough to wait. So, I want to just take a moment and wait together. Close your eyes if you would. See, following Jesus, there's just longing and there's waiting. And some of you are here this morning and you're carrying brutal, brutal stuff. And you are in desperate need of hope. And so as a community... We agree with what is written in the book of Romans. This hope does not disappoint. And so, Heavenly Father, would you speak, would you comfort your people with comfort that human beings cannot provide for each other? Would you testify with the spirits of your children that you've indeed adopted them into your family? Would you let them know that you are with them and you are not surprised by what is happening to them. And you've not abandoned them in this. And that it will simply not always be this way. Father, would you, with the power of your spirit, make those words true and authoritative in our hearts. So as we sing a song of longing that's just fitting, we don't want to run from waiting, we don't want to run, we just want to sit in it for a